0: back to Bardflies, a podcast about why you should always pay tribute to the Roman Empire and listen to the King of the Gods when he drops down from a thundercloud. This week, a story of insane wagers, faked infidelity, idiotic stepchildren, evil stepmothers, surprisingly effective disguises, and yet more drugs unapproved by the FDA. I'm James Smith.
1: And I'm Will Quinn.
0: This is episode 36, Imogen, There's No Clotin.
2: I am son to the queen.
0: I'm sorry for it, not seeming so worthy as thy birth.
2: Art not afeard?
0: Those that I reverence, those I fear, the wise. At fools I laugh, not fear them. Will, would you be so kind as to give us a plot summary of Cymbeline, if you please?
1: Our play opens in Britain governed on behalf of Caesar Augustus by Cymbeline, a local Celtic king. This being a play by Shakespeare, all is not well at court. Cymbeline's family situation is complicated, to say the least. In a blended family merger that makes Cinderella look like the Brady Bunch, Cymbeline is remarried a nameless, sinister queen after his first wife's death. His two sons from a prior marriage were kidnapped in their infancy by a traitor named Belarius. His stepson Clotin is an ignorant and lascivious dolt, and his remaining daughter Imogen just secretly married Posthumous Leonatus, the orphan of a soldier who Cymbeline has adopted and raised at court. That secret marriage is a problem. Cymbeline needed Imogen to marry a noble to continue the royal line, and the queen wanted to pair her with Clotin. The royal pair responds to the unwelcome turn of events in different ways. Cymbeline banishes Posthumus, who exchanges a bracelet for Imogen's ring as tokens of fidelity during their separation before he heads off to Rome. The queen, in full evil stepmother mode, plans to poison both Cymbeline and Imogen and seize power, a plot in which she attempts to enlist a doctor who discerns her intentions and switches the poison with a sleeping potion that the queen then hands off to Pisanio, a loyal servant to Imogen and Posthumus, who is told that it is merely medicinal in nature. Upon arriving in Italy, Posthumus hangs out with a crowd of foreigners who debate the merits of women from their homelands, and ends up getting into an argument with a Lothario named Iacomo, who challenges Posthumus's praise for Imogen's chastity. Iacomo bets Posthumus that he can head to Britain, seduce Imogen, and return with proof, a wager that Posthumus strangely accepts. If Yakima wins, Yakima will receive a jeweled ring that Imogen gave Posthumus. If Posthumus wins, Yakima will pay him in gold and will have to fight him in a duel. Back in Britain, Imogen has sequestered herself away from walking sexual harassment lawsuit Clotin, whose disgusting efforts to woo her have failed to make any headway whatsoever, and whose penchant for malapropisms make him the butt of his servant's jokes. Adding to Imogen's general misery, Yakimo shows up and tries to seduce her under the pretext that Posthumus has cheated on her and doesn't appreciate her beauty, only for Imogen to shut Yakimo down relentlessly. Yakimo, however, refuses to take no for an answer and hides in a chest in Imogen's bedroom until she falls asleep. He takes the bracelet that Posthumus gave her and memorizes some details about the room, as well as the mole on Imogen's breast, which he plans to use as evidence of his success. When he returns to Italy, this last detail sends Posthumus over the edge. He sends a letter to Imogen, asking her to meet him at Milford Haven in Wales, and one to Basanio, commanding him to murder her in revenge for her alleged infidelity. Then the Romans show up in Britain. Goaded on by the queen, Cymbeline refuses to render unto Caesar ambassador, thus setting his kingdom on a collision course with the legion. Pisanio receives Posthumus' letter and, being a true mensch, tells Imogen of Posthumus' fury. Mortified to lose her true love, Imogen begs him to kill her, but he refuses and tells her to disguise herself as a young man and travel from Wales to Rome with Caesar's emissary. He offers her the potion from the queen, which he believes will calm her, and they part ways with Imogen heading into the wilderness. Simultaneously, Cloten gets wind of Posthumus' first letter to Imogen, setting up their rendezvous at Milford Haven, and decides that he will go and ambush Posthumus, kill him, and then seize, rape, and marry the unfortunate Imogen. What a charmer. What a I mean, charmer truly, that
0: Clotin is.
1: Truly, truly charming. But just wait, dear listeners, just wait. To compound the perversity and strong serial killer vibes, Cloten decides to do all of this while disguised in Posthumus's clothes. He sets off on his evil mission. Meanwhile, an upset and weakened Imogen seeks shelter in a cave along her journey, where she comes to meet the hunter, Balerius, under a different name of Morgan, and his sons, Polydor and Cadwall. These men are actually her brothers, whom the former courtier, Balerius, now known as Morgan, has raised without telling them about their royal parentage. The boys take an immediate liking to the disguised Imogen and let her stay with them. Their brief respite is rudely interrupted by Clotin, who insults and challenges one of the sons when he comes upon the two of them outside the cave. Clotin loses the fight and his head in the process, but when they return to the cave, they find that Imogen has taken the potion provided by Pisanio, which has sent her into such a deep sleep that they assume that she has died. They leave to prepare to bury her and Clotin, only for Imogen to awake and find a headless body wearing posthumous' clothes. She makes the natural assumption and is completely undone by the death of her beloved. The invading Roman army then comes upon the hideout, and Caesar's emissary takes on the disguised and forlorn Imogen as a page while they march to battle. Meanwhile, the grief-stricken Posthumus has decided to atone for ordering the murder of his beloved, first by enlisting with the Romans and then by switching sides and fighting for the Britons. Alongside Valerius and his royal sons, he saves a grateful Cymbeline from the invaders and turns the tide against them, though Cymbeline doesn't recognize any of the men who have come to his aid. But Posthumus' remorse is too great. At the last moment, he changes into Roman clothing and allows himself to be captured along with the remaining legionnaires, Iacomo, and a disguised Imogen, all of whom will be executed by their British captors. In prison, he has a vision of his dead family and the god Jupiter, who descends from a storm cloud, offering some cryptic words that prophesy a better fate for Posthumus and for Britain. Cymbeline prepares to execute the prisoners, only to receive word that the queen, who has been ailing since Clotin's disappearance, just died shortly after confessing to plotting against the realm. As he prepares to kill the Roman page his forces have captured, he is struck by how familiar he, or rather she, looks, which gives him pause. Then, Imogen sees Posthumus' ring on Iacomo's finger and calls him out, which prompts Giacomo to confess that he got the ring through trickery. Posthumus then steps forward to confirm the tale and his remorse. Imogen tries to approach Posthumus, who assumes she is a boy, and knocks her down, only to be corrected by Pisanio, who steps forward to explain that the page is in fact the princess. Then, because confession is good for the soul, Valerius steps forward. To explain that he was set up when he fled court years ago and reveals that his sons are, in fact, Cymbelines. Since they are older than Imogen and ahead in the line of succession, she can marry Posthumus after all. A grateful Cymbeline pardons everyone, including the Romans, and blames the Queen for his refusal to pay the Emperor, fulfilling Jupiter's prophecy of peace and prosperity. Much feasting and tranquility ensues.
0: Thank you, Will another fascinating uh, and perfectly executed plot summary from you in a play that, well, uh, <laughs> I don't Far know from quite perfect. what to say. I don't know quite what to say about the plot of this play. Uh, a, a, a play with some bizarre turns, uh, I, as I think our, our listeners who may have not read the play uh, should now be aware after listening to this plot summary. But, Will, that actually, I think, is an ideal place for us to begin our conversation, because look, we've seen a few, <laughs> a few strained plots over the course of our Shakespearean exploration here. And in in fact, I would say that, you know, we've talked about mashups before. We've talked about times when Shakespeare has recycled different things between different plays. This one really sticks out at me, Will, because I feel like Shakespeare has done that mashup thing and, like, recycled a bunch of stuff, but it seems like he's really recycled a lot of the most bizarre plot choices that he's made in other
1: plays. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> so
0: I, I just wanted us to start this out by calling out some of the more bizarre and strange moments in this one, and, and maybe we can just rank what we each thought were the, you know, the couple most bizarre moments here. So tell me, uh, from from your perspective, what are, you know, maybe maybe your top three weirdest beats or moments, or even just plot lines in this play?
1: Yeah, so coming out of Winter's Tale, where a statue literally comes to life, you would think that I was prepared for some of the bizarreness that ensued. I tolerate the statue coming to life a lot better than some of the insanity in this play. So the first one that stands out to me is actually, uh, has nothing to do with the supernatural. It is the bizarre wager that Yakimo and particularly Posthumus engage in, where Posthumus is basically setting himself up to potentially be cuckolded. And if he wins, he gets some gold and the right to duel Yakimo. That seems very (laughs) odd to me. But I, I would imagine that Yakimo's life should be forfeit if he fails in this. But also, why would you make this bet to begin with? It's a bizarre situation. It's an indecent proposal, but the payouts seem kind of strange to me and yet he rolls with it he doesn't even seem all that upset by the suggestion he's he's obviously annoyed and he's confident that imogen would never betray him and yet he goes with this and it seems out of the blue and is just totally bizarre so that's that's one for me what about one for you we can go back and forth (sighs)
0: there are so many to choose from here and the thing is will i feel like there are there are both moments, and then there are, you know, there are, there are specific things that happen in the plot, and then there are also, at some points just, like, the way that things happen that's bizarre, or things that, like, maybe if the play had less other weird stuff, you know, might make more sense, but, like, yeah. even yeah. things like Cymbeline just pardoning Valerius at the end, right, being like, oh, it's so great, I'm so glad that you brought my sons back, wouldn't you think that Cymbeline would just be mad? Well, that his sons had disappeared yeah. for 20 years, and like then Valerius pops up again and is like, Oh, actually, I kidnapped them. And <laughs> Cymbeline's like, <Yeah>. absurdly grateful.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, and and let's not forget, L- Balerius wait, wait, wait. doesn't even... Yeah.
0: Cymbeline literally says, The service that you three have done is more unlike than thou tellst. I lost my children, if these be they, I know not how to wish a pair of worthier sons. And it's like, just completely skipping over the part where they were kidnapped...
1: Yes, well, and, and let's go back to Balerius' aside to the audience, where he explains why he kidnapped the sons. He says, "O oh Cymbeline, heaven in my conscience knows thou didst unjustly banish me, whereupon, at three and two years old, I stole these babes, thinking to bar thee of succession, as thou reft'st me of my lands. This is, it's just true revenge. He's just trying to screw Cymbeline. That's why he did it. He doesn't even have a good justification for protecting the lives of the children. It's not like the evil stepmother is waiting in the wings to murder them and he has wind of the plot. It's just straight up revenge. It's like, well, he stole my land and he banished me and it was unjust. So I'm going to steal his kids. And he gets pardoned for it. That's pretty Not only
0: pardoned, but like
1: thanked. Yeah, pardoned and, and The thanks. whole
0: plotline. I mean, and, and not even to mention, Will, that we haven't even hit the point of, like, that it seems to be absurdly easy for Valerius to kidnap the royal children when Valerius apparently was really on the outs with Cymbeline 20 years ago or however yeah. long ago this happened. You would think that someone, you know, would see Valerius skulking around the palace or whatever, like the royal hut, because I guess this is sort of prehistoric Britain. You know, very yes. early Roman Britain. You think it wouldn't be so easy for him to just waltz in there and walk away with two babies, who, by the way, he then is going to raise by himself in the woods.
1: For, so, uh, so in the fairness, whole plot line, fairness, I find
0: to be bizarre.
1: This is a bizarre f- plot line. In fairness to Belarius, it may be an inside job because he alludes to the nurse who presumably right, right, escapes right, right, right. I with I him about the nurse. and poses as the boy's mother, Euryphile since I'm looking at the script as we speak. Also, you're a file. There's probably some sort of Brexit joke that we could make here related to exiting the Roman Empire. But right. regardless, minor, minor detail. So in defense, that scarcely helps the absurdity of this particular plot line and Cymbeline's bizarre magnanimity towards Valerius at the end of it, for sure. Fair enough. I'll throw I, out I another one. Tell me, give, I'll, give I'll me, throw out give another me. thing It's.
0: Yeah, Yeah. tell me. What else? What else?
1: So another one that I think is a little bizarre, and it's creepy. It could work as a creepy detail because he's kind of a creepy guy. But Clotin deciding to wear Posthumus's clothes because at one point Imogen had said he was no better than Posthumus's garment— So I get that that's maybe a creepy, like he's going to go and kidnap and rape and forcibly marry Imogen. Maybe there's something to that that just compounds the creepiness, but I found it to be rather bizarre, and then to have so much of the plot hinging on, oh, he's wearing Posthumus's clothes, Posthumus must be dead, but there's no head to verify, and clearly his body must be identical enough to Posthumus that... Imogen just takes it for granted, it just seems a little strange to me. And we've seen that pop up before in Shakespeare, too, of just like, well, this, this pirate looks to be about the same as this other guy. Why don't we just behead them and nobody can tell the difference? Which I think was a measure-for-measure measure thing. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> weird, right? Uh, like, same, weird and inexplicable.
0: On the same theme, I don't think as egregious as the Clotin wearing posthumous' clothes, but also, apparently, and just has terrible facial recognition. <laughs> and, and, like, you know, so does posthumous, apparently. But, and I, I know this is a thing we've also seen throughout Shakespeare, right, where people just mysteriously can't seem to recognize people that you would expect that they would immediately know who they were. But right, right, Cymbeline, in particular, at the end of this play, like, not recognizing Valerius. Now, okay, fine, I guess you haven't seen him in 20 years, like, very well. Not recognizing his own daughter,
1: Yeah, that seems improbable. Even with some decent clothing change-outs, it seems like you should be able to figure it out. I mean, Cymbeline's kind of an idiot, I think I would submit, in this play in general. He seems kind of like a credulous dupe. But even so, the inability to even recognize people in the moment is not... You can't explain that by just sheer idiocy, unfortunately, and and astoundingly poor judgment. Very, very poor
0: judge of character i would say
1: yes yes continuing a pattern in uh, most of the kings of shakespeare questionable judgment of character let's see another one that jumps out to me that is just sort of wildly bizarre and improbable and you know that this is a bunch of weird ones when uh, you know when when deus ex machina is like the least improbable and ridiculous (laughs) is jupiter descending (laughs) um Jupiter descending to, like, prophesy and tell posthumous that all will be well. That is a strange little scene,
0: I have I mean, to say. Will, I, you know, I have to say, I think this just is something that goes to show how bizarre some of these plot elements are, that I literally, like, I was going back through the play to put my notes together before this conversation, and I had literally forgotten that that Jupiter descending from the heaven scene was in the play. <laughs> On the list of, like... I feel like in most plays that scene would be number like fall like, out
1: of your chair <laughs> number like. one on the list. I'd be
0: like, what is happening? <laughs> and in this play, it was like the sixth. Like it didn't even register because there was so much other weird stuff going on. I'm not disagreeing with you. I mean, it is it is an incredibly bizarre moment. But I just think that like the fact that I just completely forgot about it is indicative of how much weird stuff is happening here. Let me throw one more out, Will. Although this—and this is more, I think, a plot structure thing. And this actually would—maybe may, is an interesting point uh, about this. But the death of Clotin is yes. incredibly abrupt. It was the sort yes. of thing where—so, you know, Clotin is wandering around. He's, he's going through the forest. He's, like, on his way to Milford Haven. I think, what, he's going to challenge Posthumus. Oh, no, he's going to kill Imogen. Whatever it is that he's going to do. <laughs> and then he just, like, meets the brothers and then suddenly is killed. This is the character who we've sort of been set up as, you know, I guess the queen maybe is arguably the main antagonist, but Clotin is kind of the more directly, obviously, antagonistic figure, right? And all of a sudden, he's just dead in Act 3.
1: And, like, very, very quickly, to your point, it's like they start fighting, they exit the stage, and then one of the sons comes back with Clotin's head.
0: It's not bizarre that that character would die. Yeah. It's like the way and the point in the play where it happens that was so strange and disorienting. And I think that's... Yes. I think that goes to to show what's going on here and why these things feel particularly egregious is it's a combination of both very unrealistic or surprising or bizarre plot elements combined mm-hmm. with things happening at times and in ways that just don't feel right. Like, they don't feel uh, coherent. So in Romeo and Juliet, right, we can talk about the friar's absurd plan to, like, make everything work, right? And, like, the, the sort of vicissitudes and the plot mechanics that lead to their deaths. But the thing is, in Romeo and Juliet, it's so tightly scripted and plotted that you're, like, buying into it. Mm. it, it and, it, in fact, it, it ends up having this great sense of pathos to it because you're like, ah, oh, it's right. like, is it going to work? Somehow he convinces you that it's all going to work out, even though you know it's not going to work out. Here, it's exact like, 180 degrees the opposite of that.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So I will say, in my prodigious Wikipedia research in preparation for the show, I did find an argument from Harold Bloom that this is Shakespeare's great self-parody, where he is kind of a tired artist at the end of his life and stuffing all of his most contrived and ridiculous tendencies into one play. And part of me thinks that I like that interpretation more than this play just being <laughs> being ridiculous trash. But nonetheless, it's almost self-parody, if not actual self-parody, because there's so much craziness that we've seen pop up. You have sort of the nods to Othello with the sort of exchange of love tokens and, and infidelity, You've got the the headless body type situation, recalling measure for measure. You have the potion from Romeo and Juliet. You just get the sense that he had put all of his plot beats into a cup or something and shaken it up and Mm -hmm. just started drawing them at random and throwing it together. I will say though, James, there is one character that I think we should talk about at somewhat greater length, who is, as you put it, you feel like he should have a little bit more of a buildup before his untimely demise because he's actually a rather odious and somewhat unique character in our encounters with Shakespeare's villains so far. And that's Clotin. So I wanted to throw that open to you. What do we make of Clotin? And can you tell the audience a little bit about Clotin's stupidity and just all-around villainy? Give, give us a picture of this man.
0: So... Well, first of all, can I just throw a very, very scalding hot take out here? Please. Which is, I think Clotin, like, where there is genius in this play, it is in the character of Clotin. Because I actually believe that Clotin is a pathetic, and I actually mean pathetic in the sense of like having pathos, Mm. actually very realistic portrait of a certain kind of utter weenie that we all know <laughs> and hate. But actually, in this character, Shakespeare has done, I think, a pretty a pretty amazing job of actually drawing out the psychology of this kind of character in a way that almost humanizes him, even as much as mm. doesn't really humanize him. Like, we're still really glad when he gets his just desserts. But I did find myself, when I was going back through rereading the play, rereading his lines, being like, he is getting into the psychological depth of this character and what makes him tick. But uh, I'm I'm, I'm a little bit getting ahead of myself here. And that is because, Will, I think now obviously like I can't claim to have an intimate knowledge of all world literature prior to Shakespeare. Perhaps because, Will, as we know, really there is no literature before Shakespeare or arguably (laughs) after Shakespeare. But Clotin is essentially the first and probably best portrait of what today we might call an incel in literature. <laughs> this is a character who is, and I, you have to imagine that I'm putting this in air quotes when I say this, but he is quote unquote in love with Imogen. He is rejected by Imogen. He will not give up his pursuit of Imogen despite her f- repeated and like emphatic <laughs> rejections of him. Imogen just, Cannot be more clear here. She says, Profane fellow, wert thou the son of Jupiter and no more but what thou art besides that were too base to be his groom, his being posthumous, Thou were dignified enough even to the point of envy if twere made comparative for virtues to be styled the underhangman of his kingdom and hated for being preferred so well. She's like, he cannot ever compare to posthumous who is her love. His meanest garment that, ha- that ever hath but clipped his body is dearer in my respect than all the hairs above thee where they all made such men. Um, uh, (laughs) Sorry, I know there's one more great line here. Um, Yeah. I, which know my heart, do here pronounce by the very truth of it, I care not for you, and am so near the lack of charity to accuse myself, I hate you, which I had rather you felt than make my boast. So (laughs) she is being completely explicit about it. This is not like a, oh, I'm sorry, I have to go wash my hair. You know, sorry, actually, like... You know, oh, I have plans that night. Uh, This is not the letting him down easily kind of thing. Like, Imogen is being very, very clear. And Clotin just will not give up. Yes. And at the same time, what we see is he, he like, really wants to prove himself. He, like, wants to get into fights with people because he wants to, like, prove his masculinity. And then with Imogen, he basically gets to this point of I'm in love with her or I, it's not clear to me if it's truly he's in love with her, or if it's he's thinks she's very beautiful, or what. But essentially, hits this point of I'm in love with her, and she won't have me, so now I hate her, and I'm gonna kill her. Right? It is this very stalkery vibe, and I just want to read yes. what I think is the most complete sort of expression of his incel, like the, the, the encapsulation of of this in her, where he says.
2: Aww love, and hate her, for she, she is fair and royal, and hath all courtly parts more exquisite than lady, ladies, woman, from everyone the best she hath, so that she, of all compounded, outsells them all, but disdaining me, and throwing favors on the low posthumous slanders so her judgment, that what else is rare is choked, and in this point will I conclude to hate her, nay, indeed. And to be revenged upon her.
0: So, I think, Will, that this is actually a very convincing portrait of a certain kind of frustrated male sexuality that can't take no for an answer and is like right. very insecure. Right. So, it, I, sorry, yeah, I just, I, I just I like, right. that was like a lot of verbal vomit, but w- w- hopefully you can find something to react to in there. Yeah, Tell me if well, that makes sense to you, what you think...
1: So James, I actually do think that makes a lot of sense. I think a good way to understand Clotin is that of an entitled and not especially competent or attractive in any way young man who thinks he deserves things just because he wants them. And it's also amusing that he's pretty widely viewed as incompetent. His introduction scene is him coming off of a duel, And he is boasting about how great he was in this duel, and his lords just have a series of asides where they're just making fun of him brutally for being incompetent and totally unworthy and how the other duelist was was much better than him. So you have these moments of Clotin just being roundly mocked by everyone. And then you have his explosive rage where he reveals that he's going to go and murder Posthumus and then sees Imogen basically taunting her by wearing Posthumus's clothes where he says,
2: (laughs) I would this suit were come with that suit upon my back. Will I ravish her? First, first, kill him. And in her eyes, there, she shall see my valour, which will then be a torment to her contempt. <laughs> he on the ground, my speech of insultment ended on his dead body. And once my lust hath died
1: To which I annotated gross in the <laughs> side of my play.
2: He on the ground, my speech of insultment ended on his dead body. And once my lust hath dined, which, as I say, to vex her, I will execute in the clothes that she so praised. To the court I'll knock her back, foot her home again. She hath despised me rejoicingly, and I will be merry in my revenge. So Ugh. gross, as I said. I, I didn't you, even.
0: Like, I mean, there's so much. Again, will on the similar vibe. I didn't even notice that passage because there was so much other stuff going on. But that is, yeah, that's uh, that's gross. That's.
1: I it's, think we can it's, agree. It's pretty. It's pretty disgusting. Pretty entitled and clearly profoundly disturbed in some way. And I think with this play shows with Clotin. I think you're totally right. I think an involuntary celibate or an incel is actually a perfect example here. And to go even deeper into internet subculture, he's total fail son. He's this guy who's totally comfortable in his courtly existence. He's able to insulate himself from his own incompetence and failure up until the point where he encounters If he is the weenie and sort of weakling on one side, he encounters the two chads, the two hunters in the woods, who promptly behead him. So he's basically a walking meme from the 21st century of... I don't know, Reddit, 4chan, less savory places on the internet that depicted sort of entitled male rage. And he gets what's coming to him, which is uh, kind of enjoyable to watch, honestly, even if it feels rather abrupt.
0: So can I complicate this picture a little bit, Will? Because I, I, I don't... It's not a disagreement with anything you're saying. I guess I think the placement of Clotin's death and the manner that it happens is sort of unsatisfying, but... I think that if it had happened in a more justified way, it would be a highlight of the play, right? You can imagine this being a total crowd-pleaser moment when the guy that we all love to hate finally gets his just desserts. That being said, and this being Shakespeare, I think it actually is a little bit more complicated than that because
1: mm.
0: what I see with Clotin is I I think Shakespeare actually does do really interesting work in... He's not just putting Clotin out there and having Clotin do this creepy, weird stuff and, like, just leaving it at that, right? He actually does get into the psychology of the character a -hmm. little bit. Like, I feel like what emerges with Clotin is you see this character who is this sort of entitled, wealthy, incompetent, as you said, Mm -hmm. but also he's someone who is prevented by that station from actually Mm -hmm. being able to develop good characteristics or grow up or something. You know, he has this this line where he says, um, I'm not vexed more at anything in the earth a pox on it i had rather not be so noble as i am they dare not fight with me because of the queen my mother every jack slave hath his belly full of fighting and i must go up and down like a cock that nobody can match now i think mm. cloten's obsession with dueling which we see throughout the play right is like desire to fight is not a thing that reflects well on him i think it's a, a ridiculous characteristic but i think in this line what you're getting from shakespeare or what shakespeare is doing is establishing that like what's happening with Clotin is he has no way to prove himself to himself. These other people don't want to fight with him. He sort of has everything given to him. Like You you can tell me if I'm reading too much into this, but Mm
2: -hmm. I actually
0: feel like we're understanding where this character of his comes from. And then similarly, with his reaction to Imogen and his rejection and his obviously, shall we say, not very productive reaction to rejection, I actually... Nonetheless, think that Shakespeare is plumbing the psychology of a very real, I mean, in this case, specifically male, but even abstracted out from that, a very human characteristic, right? Of like, there's the thing that you want, but you can't have. And either you can react to that by accepting that and moving on and accepting it with grace. But you sort of need to have the confidence and belief in yourself already to be able to do that. Or you can take that as a slight and as something that, like, Mm. even if it has not nothing to do with you, but even if it's not about you, there's the thing that you want and you can't have. And in this case, you you see the psychology of how that turns into a very counterproductive and immature response. And and it has to do with his insecurity in the way that it—to him, what happens— is it's not a rejection that he can take in stride because he lacks fundamentally the belief in himself to be able to take it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I've been blabbing on here, but I, I actually do think that there is some real psychological richness and depth to this character, and Shakespeare showing us something about a certain kind of anger and frustration that is real.
1: Yeah, I think he is, but it's obviously not a sympathetic portrait. He's the butt of the jokes, he's an obnoxious character. I think that there is pathos here in that the character is a recognizable archetype, but I think he's mostly played for laughs, honestly. That he's amped up as a sort of disturbing, and I think Shakespeare's audiences would have found this guy striding about the stage saying that he's going to rape the lead female character who's been nothing but virtuous. He would have been seen, obviously, as a totally villainous entity. But also a figure of comedy because of his incompetence, malapropisms, hot-headedness that he can't back up. So I think it's somewhat complicated in the sense that it clearly comes from somewhere and it captures something recognizable. But you're not really meant to feel all that bad for the guy, right? Like when his head comes off, it's more analogous to the sudden death of an obnoxious character in the movies than...
0: um, Yeah, someone you've just been waiting to get their Just Desserts for the entirety of the film.
1: Exactly. Though there are two ways of doing that, right? And I think this is kind of an interesting Hollywood corner bit here, where there are two ways, right? There's one where you have the climactic undoing of the villain in some way, where they're attached to a rocket and Arnold Schwarzenegger shoots them off of yes. uh, of a jet in True Lies after a prolonged fist fight and suddenly a quick turn. But there's also the less frequent but still very amusing style where you take a character who is just hated and obnoxious and you kill them in an extremely sudden and violent way that comes out of nowhere just when they're peak triumph. And maybe this is not the best example, but I think of um, when DiCaprio's character Calvin Candy gets killed in Django where he just suddenly gets shot through the chest when he's on the top of his Victory after basically revealing Django's plot mm-hmm. and uh, you know selling him back into slavery, basically. Or there's also moments where there's some film where um, you know somebody steps off a curb and an obnoxious character who's on the on the brink of victory just gets hit by a bus. I'm forgetting which one that is, but you have stuff like that, or um, another uh, Jamie Foxx in uh, Baby Driver where he's pulling a gun on the main character and has been obnoxious and berating him throughout. And then suddenly gets run into a piece of rebar and just dies in a car accident suddenly when he's about to win. So there is something to be said for these moments of almost unintentional slash intentional comedy where an obnoxious secondary villain gets taken out in a sudden way. And and that can sometimes work. And I think it's a trope that people use, which can work. But, I don't know, whether it works exactly in this instance is sort of up to the, the viewer to judge.
0: So, what I would say about it, Will, is I think there's two types of villains here that we're talking about, right? There are the villains that are, like, feel like real villains who represent a real threat to your right. hero. Where their death is like a crowd-pleasing, sheer, rah-rah moment because you feel like your hero has actually overcome something, right? So I would say to use two of our favorite films that we refer to with some regularity, right? Think of when either like Rochefort is killed in The Three Musketeers or when the Sheriff of Nottingham is killed in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, right? Those are characters who are like genuine villains and we want them to lose and we cheer when they get their just desserts, but they're not like pathetic, you know?
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Whereas I would say what this one reminded me of is you know, in Alien, there's that character who's like the representative of the evil corporation. Yeah. And who at every yeah, turn yeah. is like, No, no, we can't deal with this. And it feels completely unjustified, and he's a complete weenie, and then in the in the end, he's like eaten by the aliens. Yes, quite in like suddenly, a very like yeah. satisfying, like <laughs> Yes, I hated that guy. That's what this feels more like. Like that guy, every time you see him in the movie, you're like What is this idiot doing?
1: Yes. This has
0: more of that kind of valence, right? Where it's a character that you really hate and you also don't respect. Whereas I feel like the Sheriff of Nottingham, you respect, even though you're not rooting Well, you
1: want there to be a climactic battle in some sense. And in Aliens, the corporate weenie played by Paul Reiser, his deal, right, is that he is a problem, right? He does want them to bring the aliens back from, you know, the wu Corporation and have it as a biological weapon. But really, the real villain is the Queen alien, right? Right. And that's sort yeah. of what you're paying to see is the climactic battle between Ripley in the loading suit and the Queen. And I think maybe one of the problems with this play in some respects is the Queen just kind of disappears despite being made out at the outset to be the author of villainy yeah her plot goes awry and then she just disappears after she goes cymbeline into going to war with the romans and so we're sort of robbed of any satisfying denouement in that sense with the primary villain which maybe makes the clotin death scene a little odd right because you suddenly have evil punished and then the other evil gets punished off stage, which is not very satisfying. And then everything just kind of washes out right at the end. So there is a little bit of a, maybe a plot arc problem here that yeah. in some of these other films and books and plays that we've talked about, where at least you get the climactic duel, you get the battle scene and justice being meted out by the true threat. Whereas the secondary villains... Like job getting electrocuted by his metal hat, or or whatever the case may be. That's more what the Clotin death feels like, except right. odd job is considerably more competent than Clotin.
0: Yeah. Let me make one more observation, Will, that this is something that just occurred to me, but on the subject of the pathos or lack thereof of the character, because I, I think you're completely right. I do not think that we're really supposed to have sympathy for Clotin. But what it reminds me of, actually, not nearly as complex or interesting a character— but it sort of reminds me of Shylock. Mm. I don't think that Shylock... Look, obviously, what do I know about Shakespeare's intentions? Blah, blah, blah. I don't get the impression reading The Merchant of Venice that Shakespeare went into it being like, Shylock, I'm going to make this incredibly psychologically rich character who's a villain, but actually he's sympathetic too. You know, like I don't think that that was Shakespeare's intention, right? Mm. I think Shakespeare went into The Merchant of Venice being like, this guy's the villain, and he's going to get his just desserts and like, it's going to be a crowd pleaser. He's going to be forced to convert to Christianity and everyone's going to be happy about that. I think to me, it's more a sign of Shakespeare's, we can call it his genius, we can call it his artistry, whatever. Mm. He just can't help himself, I think. And I feel like we've seen that numerous times throughout his plays where whatever the thing is that he's doing, he has to get into the psychology of the character and show you what's going on with them. Look, as I said, Clotin is not nearly as interesting a character as Shylock is no one's having arguments in 2022 about cluton right right but i do think it's of a piece with his writing with his process with what we've seen in other plays that he's not content to just have the character be a cardboard cutout right
1: yeah uh, he he has to show
0: us something a little bit more
1: he doesn't do this for every character and you get the sense that Sometimes he surprises himself. The Shylock instance is I could believe that he set out to write the story as you suggest he might have, and then he discovered that Shylock was a much more interesting character. Yeah. Which I think that feels almost indisputable because of the lines that he gives Shylock and the incredible writing that surrounds yeah. that character in particular. He obviously knew what he was doing when he was constructing that character because he could have just been a cardboard cutout, right? Yeah, Clotin, you get the sense that a lot of the characters in this play are not particularly psychologically interesting or complex. They go through the motions of the plot beats and express the motivations that you would totally expect at face value, and you don't really see much probing of that. And in Clotin's case, at least you're getting the portrait of somebody who, in his bizarrely intense malice and in his total inability to impress anyone throughout the entire story, you get the sense that it's a gesture at a different type of archetype that we haven't really seen all that much of, and that Shakespeare explored and is articulating in a way that is somewhat unique. And it almost feels incidental to the story, and yet it's certainly memorable, right? I think you can't not remember this character if you read this play, because it's one of the few pieces that really stands out as a somewhat unique feature.
0: Agreed. Will, if I may move on from Clotin, there's one other thing I was interested in talking about with this play, which is not as much to do with the plot itself, but with connecting back with some themes that we've seen throughout Shakespeare. And that is the British-Roman conflict that we see in this play that is resolved basically by Cymbeline agreeing to rejoin the Roman Empire. You know, I feel like over the course of the Shakespeare plays, we've seen a pretty consistent strain of what we would describe as English or British nationalism, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's something special and unique about England or Britain, and Shakespeare celebrates that in, in one way or the other throughout his work and seems to lean into an independence Uniqueness <laughs> and the independence of the English and maybe the British. Whereas in this play, they rebel, they don't pay the tribute, they've been conquered by Caesar, but then they don't pay the tribute, and then the Romans send the army and they fight with the Romans and they beat the Romans, but then simply in the end, you know, it turns out that he's been misled and he should never have maybe should never have fought the Romans, and he agrees to rejoin the Empire, more or less. I couldn't quite figure out is like, is this Shakespeare changing his tune? Is it just the plot necessities of it? What is, because it it feels like it's a new direction for him on this question of identity and Englishness or Britishness. Did that jump out at you at all? What what did you make of that?
1: I do have a theory of this, right? In the scene where the queen is basically goading Cymbeline to not pay tribute to the Romans, there's some interesting dialogue, but essentially the queen goads him by saying and sort of encouraging encourages him to think about how there are many Caesars. And Julius was a great Caesar, but it's not really clear that Augustus deserves the same level of respect. And then she basically articulates in John of Gaunt's words almost literally the same sentiment is expressed by her.
2: <laughs> Remember so, my liege, the kings, your ancestors,
1: together with the natural braver of your isles, stand as
2: Neptune's park, ribbed and paled with rocks unscalable and roaring waters, with sands that will not bear your enemies' boats, but suck them up to the top mast.
1: So she has this whole monologue that is equivalent to the John of God sceptered isle speech. However, it's put in the mouth of somebody who's villainous, who may not even be a Briton, actually, because she does say the king's your ancestors with the bravery of your isle. You have this uh, great patriotic sentiment, but it's being perverted in some way. However, in your summary of what happens, it's a little bit Different and ambiguous in the end, right? Because the Britons and British sort of patriotism does triumph on the battlefield. They're never defeated in the battlefield by the Romans. And they show great magnanimity in restoring order and being peaceable with the Romans in victory once it's revealed that the Queen was manipulating. So in a sense, this is kind of Shakespeare allowing the British to or the English to have their cake and eat it too. His audience members can say, "Well, we're victorious against the Romans, you know, foreign treachery, you know, or, or subversion within the court, and foreign invasion can both be repelled, and order can be restored." And obviously, I'm not a scholar on the Jacobean era, but you could imagine. Perhaps a certain level of the plea for a kind of stability and order emerging in this period for Shakespeare's audience. That's me just completely speculating. But I think that there's something interesting here where he allows the audience, his audience, to feel good about the Britons while also affirming a sort of broader piece. So, in that sense, I think it's a complex kind of message. I don't think he's really walking away from britain being great i just think he's maybe complicating it a little by showing that the greatness of britain doesn't always have to be diametrically opposed to others per se and in fact certain unscrupulous people might be ginning up conflict from within yeah
0: i mean there's i don't want to like read back into shakespeare's time too much as you said but it almost feels like it's of a piece with british ambivalence about Europe, Mm -hmm. right? Where it's like, we're of it, like we're Europeans, but maybe we're also not totally Europeans, (laughs) right? We're, well, you know, like, yeah, we'll we'll be in the empire, but like, we don't have to be in the empire. I just want to be totally clear. Like we don't have to be, we beat you. Yeah, exactly. But we're going to do it for now. Right. You know, it it has a little bit of that. We're going to be a part of it, but maybe we don't have to be, or maybe we're not really going to be a part of it. It's like divided or like ambivalent, relation to the larger political unit.
1: Yeah.
0: I will also say, well, I, and it's definitely not the full-throated come the world in arms and we will shock them of like mm-hmm. a King John. It's not as defiant and specifically just rah-rah England as that.
1: Right.
0: When I first read the end of the play, I thought that the idea was, oh, like, no, we just made a horrible mistake. We shouldn't have been so nationalistic. And then as I was going back through it, I realized it's more complicated than that, because you do have posthumous similarly making these very, what we would call nationalistic or pro-British sort of statements, right? So it's not just the Queen and Clotin who are putting Mm -hmm. forth this idea of how great Britain is, right? It's also Imogen and Cymbeline and posthumous. And so it's, as you said, he's not actually backing away from that. And I I did wonder, um, again, as you said, completely speculatively, but I did wonder if there was an element of this that like you know, in Shakespeare's early career, that's during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. It's when Spain is the great enemy. It's written against Spain. They feel very alone. Whereas now it's the Jacobian period. King James had a real desire to unite the thrones of Scotland and England in, into one monarchy. Obviously, there was the personal union, but he wanted a true political union between the, the countries. So like the idea of a England being part of a larger political unit was more in the air maybe than in those earlier Elizabethan days. And maybe, so maybe we're sort of seeing some of those complexities or contradictions starting to play out. But again, that's me applying a little bit of my knowledge of the period and speculating on how it might be playing out in Shakespeare's world. But I don't know if that's...
1: No, no, I think that it's broader literary perspective, but I think that's valuable. It can be valuable to think about it in those terms because that is the context in which he... Is living and writing. It's not necessarily dispositive in any way that that's what this is about, but it is it is useful. I think you can infer certain things from the way that he writes. It would be a much simpler story, right, if it was just a full throated rejection of the Romans altogether, right? Yeah. Or a rejection of British patriotism as wholly inimical to good government and order and justice. So he's clearly making choices here. I also know he's taking his source texts from all over the place, from what I've read. You know, The Fairy Queen, which is another one of these great English patriotic epics. He's weaving together all of these different elements. So it wouldn't surprise me if he's at least thinking about some of these things, even if we don't know it for sure, based on our copious Wikipedia research, dear James. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. I also would would make the one other observation, Will, that... (laughs) You know, the relation to the Roman Empire or the perception of the Roman Empire, I think, is obviously different than the perception of the continental empires and rivals of that time, right? I think—now, I don't know how British—you know, what the historical British memory of being part of Rome is, but I feel like throughout Europe, there was a great sense of the Roman Empire having been the pinnacle of civilization. Right. And so the relation to how Britain relates to the Roman Empire— it doesn't surprise me that that would be different in Shakespeare's mind than how Britain or England relates to France or Spain. Right.
1: Exactly. And and so exactly. maybe
0: you know maybe we're seeing that the Roman Empire is afforded a level of respect and even appreciation that France is not mm-hmm. or that Spain is not. Right.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's harder to judge the Spanish or the French monarchies against and like all of their nobles against. true standard of civilization for people with classical education, which we know Shakespeare had also. So yeah,
2: absolutely. So
0: Will, I think we've done a good job on this one. I think we've hit sort of our major points. And that means Mm. we have one more great question. I have one more great question for you, Will. And that is, where do you rank it?
1: Uh, This play is uh, not good. (laughs) It is not good the question is how bad is it in comparison to some of the others that we've seen and it's definitely bottom third for me Uh, might even be bottom quarter it's not as bad as some of the things that we've read and we've had a much more interesting discussion as is our way than some of the others i am going to put it i would say hmm I'm going to put it in my 32 spot. So below Titus, above Tymon of Athens.
0: Okay. And uh, who would you anoint the MVP?
1: Pisanio, who is the one person who behaves like a sane human being in this play. Interesting. Okay. What about yourself? Where do you rank it and who's your MVP?
0: So, yeah, I'm I'm basically in agreement with you. This is not a good play. And as you say, the real question is, just how bad is it? And I'm looking at my list, and I'm... Part of the problem here, Will, is like, Two Gentlemen of Verona, Titus, Taming the Shrew, those were so long ago that it's kind of hard for me to remember how truly bad they were in comparison to this play. I will, I think, go off of, it's just like entertainment value. It's below King John, which is my 29. So it's really a question of where does it slot in in that Two Gentlemen of Verona, Titus, Taming the Shrew, Pericles, Timon of Athens sort of place. Mm. I think it's better than Pericles and Timon of Athens. I'm not sure if it's better than Taming the Shrew. I'm pretty sure it's not better than Titus. So I'm I'm going to put it... I'm actually also going to put it 32. I'm going to put it between Titus and the Taming of the Shrew. I, I, I just... I think... Both Two Gentlemen of Verona and Titus are more entertaining than this yeah, one. I, I, and frankly, like the plotting of them is better. Yes,
1: I, I, would, be I would say Titus actually stands up pretty favorably compared to some of these other ones that I have down here, simply by virtue of being yeah. entertaining and memorable. It's not a great play. It's not even like a great artistic achievement in any sense,
2: but it hangs but it together. It
1: hangs together.
0: I mean, look. Just on the subject of the villain, the villain piece we were talking about, right? Aaron the Moor, much better villain, much more entertaining villain than anything in this play. Totally, though, totally. probably does not have. I would say Cloten does actually have a little bit more psychological depth. Yeah, I mean, than Aaron,
1: Aaron the Moor is who, who
0: exists only to be a, a mustachio twirling.
1: Yes, villain who is agent who of who evil. is literally black. You know, in the sense of, yeah. to to represent his villainy, which you know is. Um, <laughs> is yeah, is not great so. by contemporary standards or standards of the time, perhaps, but I would just say a clear archetypal <laughs> villain without much psychological complexity. Clotin at least has that. But Aaron the Moor's death is much more epic than Clotin's, certainly, and feels like much more of a legit
2: buildup.
0: Yeah. And then for MVP, I'm actually going to go with Clotin, mm. Will, because on, on this basis, one, I think Clotin offers the most to talk about in this play, and, like, is the character with probably the most level of psychological intrigue. But also, too, is the source of a lot of the comedy in the play. Mm, True. A lot of the fun stuff that is in this play are, like, scenes that are funny or things that we enjoy in the play, are basically things that are happening at Clotin's expense. And he is the source of of that entertainment. So Mm. on that basis, uh, I'm going to make him the MVP.
1: Excellent. So James, do you have a non-Shakespearean recommendation for our listeners this week?
0: Well, I do. I recently watched on Hulu uh, The Dropout, which is the series about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Mm. And I have to say, I'm a little bit embarrassed about how much I enjoyed it. It is turgid it is soapy it's pretty trashy but it's i found it to be very enjoyable and i also have to say so this is a story for whatever reason i'm like very fascinated by the theranos story and i think partly it hits on a lot of my own skepticism about tech and like hype in the business world mm-hmm. but also i think unlike some of these other stories like the WeWork work thing or uber to name two other epic meltdowns that have had fictional treatments recently With the Theranos story, there is actually a real life human cost to what was going on. Yes. Whereas with Uber and WeWork, you're just seeing these like hype machines that then turn out to not have anything behind them, right? With the Theranos story, you're seeing something that like actually real world impacted people's health outcomes. And I think that's really the difference. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I thought I basically knew the plot outlines because I'd seen that doc about it a couple years ago. But I really did not know anything about the early stages of it or her personal life or the relationship between Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Bowani. Mm. So, and this, this series, I think, does a pretty good job fleshing that out. And it's a fun watch. And also, the Amanda Seyfried performance is surprisingly, surprisingly compelling and, and good. So, it's look, it is not Shakespeare by any means, but I enjoyed it. And particularly if you're interested in. Silicon Valley stuff or you know, in these kind of stories of these epic meltdowns, this was a pretty entertaining one.
1: Give us that recommendation one more time, James.
0: That is The Dropout on Hulu.
1: And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, we'll be reading Shakespeare's last great masterpiece, The Tempest. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at podcast at Gmail.